0: Pop Health Podcast is a public service of Twenty Four Hour Home Care.
1: I stayed in Europe for my residency training in psychiatry, and uh, near the end of that training, um, had an opportunity to um, work with patients and their families. Um, kind of running a a series of of lectures and seminars on reducing the stigma of mental illness in populations. And uh, that was something that I got really passionate about, and it really, I think, stimulated my interest in population health or public health.
0: another episode of Pop Health Podcast. This is Gavin Ward, co-host of Pop Health Podcast. In today's episode, I sat down with Dr. Andrew Renda in Louisville, Kentucky, at the headquarters of Humana, one of the nation's largest health plans. Now, Andrew has been working with Humana for over 11 years, and in today's episode, he talks about his progression with Humana, but most importantly, what population health means to him in Humana, and it has a big focus on social determinants of health. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and if you do feel free to leave a review on itunes spotify or stitcher and of course you can learn more about pop health podcast by looking at pophealthpodcast.com thanks everyone enjoy the show Tell us something about you that might surprise the audience, maybe something outside of the workplace. A fun fact.
1: Well, for starters, I am not a morning person, so it's brave of both of us to do this uh, here in Louisville, Kentucky at eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, But the one time that I am a morning person is when I'm in a national park, um, something my family and I love to do together. If we are in Zion National Park or Grand Canyon or Yellowstone, I'm up at the crack of dawn and I'm pulling my kids out of bed and, you know, we got to get to that trailhead. We have to see sunrise. Um, so that's just something we love to do together. And that's, that's the one time when I'm happy to get up before the, the sun's up.
0: Nice, nice. I am on uh, West Coast time, so I woke up, uh, I think I woke up at 6.15 Eastern time. Which is, I guess, some people might say, regular time for professionals. But for me, it's about three fifteen this morning. Usually, a morning. So I'm getting no sympathy from you. Is that (laughs) what you're saying? (laughs) Not today. However, I am interested. Uh, We were talking off the mic. I know your kids are doing cross country at a young age. How do they feel about that? I know your uh, fourth grader is doing over a mile already.
1: Yeah, you know, my my kids um, are not athletic, just like their parents. They're you know (laughs) uh, very intelligent. but, but clumsy and not particularly athletic, but they try, you know, they put a valiant effort in and uh, yes, my middle son, fourth grade, uh, he's running cross country and this year he's got to run 1.2 miles or 2K. Um, and when he started a few weeks ago, he couldn't run that distance without stopping and he was a little bit dejected about that. So we've been running in the evenings, uh, most nights, and now he's down to an, an eight minute mile. So he's got a meet coming up on Friday and we're, we're very excited to see him
0: kind of be in the mix. That's awesome. That's great. So uh, you talked about you like adventure, you like hiking, uh, you mentioned Grand Canyon. Um, so adventure, I think, started uh, earlier in your career or medical schooling. Tell us about where you grew up and then how you transitioned into becoming a physician and where you ended up going to medical school.
1: Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story, and it's a, it's a kind of a circular route that I took. So, you know, we're, we're here in Louisville, Kentucky today. This is where I was born and raised. I, I grew up here, went to high school just uh, down the street, St. X. I uh, went to the University of Kentucky for college, um, and after that I wanted to see a bit of the world. I wanted uh, to go to medical school, but um, I decided to go to the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. I wanted to get kind of that broader um, international experience, and so whenever there Um, An international school with a good reputation, but had students in my class from really all over the world, from the Middle East, from Europe, from North America. Um, So it was was interesting getting different perspectives from different cultures on how to approach medicine and patients and uh, the importance of taking a proper history and doing a physical examination. Um, So that was was medical school. I stayed in Europe for my residency training in psychiatry. And uh, near the end of that training... Um, had an opportunity to um, work with patients and their families, um, kind of running a a series of of lectures and seminars on reducing the stigma of mental illness in populations. And uh, that was something that I got really passionate about, and it really, I think, stimulated my interest in population health or public health. And so um, when I decided to come back to the States with my wife and my, my daughter at the time, who was born in Dublin, Uh, decided to make a transition. I went back to school and got a master's in public health. So we moved from Dublin to Boston, did a master's in public health uh, at Harvard, um, and I focused in policy and management there. So really understanding the, the policy issues around population health as well as um, you know, the management side, really understanding the, the business case for, for population health and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, then from there, uh, moved back to Kentucky and joined Humana. That was 11 years ago. So, uh, you know, I've, I've been here for 11 years. I've done, you know, a, a number of different roles uh, throughout the company. It's, it's one really great thing about Humana is that it's big enough and there's many, many opportunities for kind of career development. So I've had roles in clinical strategy. I've done interventions Um, I worked on our insurance product side, designing products for uh, the time, the Affordable Care Act, um, as well as, uh, you know, special needs populations and things like that. Um, And then for the past three years, I've been within our office of the chief medical officer doing uh, true population health work.
0: That's awesome. That's a great story. So you mentioned uh, you were in Ireland and you came here. Uh, Your daughter was actually born in Dublin. Did you meet your wife in Ireland as well?
1: No, you know, I, she's a hometown girl as well. So I was home for my first year of medical school and, uh, um our, our mothers knew each other, walked in the park, oh. and they said, oh, Kate's home for the summer, and you're home for the summer. You all should go and, you know, <laughs> have dinner, and we kind of hit it off. And so it's a, a really interesting story. We had a great summer together, and then I had to go back to Ireland for school, and she was going off to Vanderbilt for law school. So we were long distance for three years wow. until she finished, and then we got married, and she moved over, and then our daughter was born
0: two years later. That's great. What a cool, like, I think moms are probably really proud of that. You know, the moms <laughs> introduce their kids together. Isn't that like the most pure, cool story? Very cool.
1: It's a very Kentucky thing. Yes. Yes. and I noticed you're,
0: uh, you're born and raised here. Uh, Lisa in your communications department also, uh, who's here today. Thanks again for her and the team for setting this up. She mentioned she's born and raised in Kentucky as well. So I'm curious. Uh, this is my first time uh, in Kentucky is that pretty common? Do people really stay here or is that you guys think you guys are maybe outliers just out of curiosity? You know, I think Kentucky is a
1: great place to live is is kind of what I'd say about that. I said a lot of people that grow up do end up staying here. Um, but I'd say, you know, particularly in Louisville where, you know, where I'm from, um, there are lots of people that love to travel, you know, both, you know, within the country and outside the country. So I, I think, um, Louisville's gained an international flair. A lot of people from outside the country have moved here and a lot of people from here travel um, a lot. So I think it's just a great kind of melting pot uh, of a community. But awesome. uh, I'm, I'm glad to be born and raised here and I'm glad to be able to move back and raise my own family now.
0: Definitely. Yeah, the uh, the Lyft driver from the airport um, is uh, from out of the country too. So I've gotten a lot of international uh, talk, I guess, in the 24 <laughs> hours I've been here. So let's jump into Humana. Um, maybe give the audience um, just a quick overview of what is Humana? Who is Humana?
1: Sure. Um, Humana is is many things, actually. I think, um, you know, at its core, we're a health insurance company. So people are probably familiar with our Medicare Advantage products. We have Medicaid products. We have uh, commercial insurance. Um, and we have a TRICARE contract, so we administer uh, insurance to uh, military folks and their families and, and veterans. Um, but beyond that, we, we are a health and well-being company. Um, we do uh, disease prevention. We do um, disease management. We have a lot of, you know, well-being and, and clinical type programs. Um, and we are a care delivery organization. So we have clinics and physicians and, um, you know, that work for the company and actually pr- provide uh, direct patient care. So we're, we're many things.
0: Yeah, let's talk briefly about the care delivery side of Humana. Is that nationwide that you're also a care delivery or only in certain states?
1: Yeah, I mean, overall, it's nationwide. We are, you know, our footprint is primarily in the Midwest and the South. So that's where we're concentrated. But we've got, you know, outposts in different places across the country.
0: Okay, awesome. Now, one thing um, that we'll get to after the break is I really want to dig deep on what's called your bold goal. And when I was preparing for this podcast, I accidentally heard or I misheard BOGO. Uh, we talked <laughs> about this uh, last week. Uh, and, and if
1: I could interrupt you for a second, sure. um, it is commonly mispronounced. So I've heard BOGO, Gold Bowl, <laughs> Bold Goals. It's, uh, there's, there's lots of permutations on that, but it is the bold goal.
0: Yes, bold goal for the audience out there. And we'll talk a little bit about that after the break. But uh, yeah, as I was getting to know you and Humana, uh, that's what I heard. So you mentioned you're in the mid, you're primarily, uh, Humana's primarily in the Midwest and South. Can you maybe name some of the states just for our audience that you guys kind of are in? You don't have to name all of them, but. Sure,
1: yeah. absolutely. Um, Florida, Texas, uh, Tennessee, Kentucky, Georgia. Yeah, that's essentially, it's like I said, Midwest and South is, is where we are.
0: Okay earlier, Andrew, you mentioned true population health. What to you does, and you mentioned the word true. So what does that mean to you? Like population health?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, uh, people define population health just like they define social determinants of health in, in different ways. Um, When I think about population health, I go back to um, one of the fathers of epidemiology, Jeffrey Rose, and he talks about really kind of two theories of population health. One is the population view, and that is, for example, if you reduce everyone in a population, reduce their cholesterol by 10 points, you're going to reduce more heart attacks and strokes and things like that than if you go after an individual patient. Um, so that's a population view. There's also a high-risk view. So within a population, there might be 5 or 10% of that population that's at high risk for whatever it is. They're, you know, high BMI, they're high cholesterol, high blood pressure, they're at risk for cardiovascular events. And so you could go target those. And I think um, my version of what true population health is, is that you have to do both. Um, you can't only focus on the 5 or 10% at highest risk or highest complexity, but um, because then you ignore the population at whole that has some risk and that if you ignore them, um, they're going to progress and they're, gonna, they're at risk for developing things down the road. You also can't do the flip side. You can't only focus on the population at whole. You have to recognize that there are always going to be individuals that are at higher risk. So my version of true population health is that you have to do both.
0: Okay. And the term population health, I mean, the name of our show, of course, is Pop Health Podcast. Um, it seems to be a phrase that's being used more often. Uh, at least in my experience. Uh, Growing up in med school, um, working in or learning in Ireland, coming here, has population health always been a phrase that you've heard or would you say you've seen that phrase used more in healthcare today?
1: Yeah, it's something that I've always heard, but I think, you know, the definition has evolved and I think even the way I think about it has evolved. And so, um, I think when I was coming up through undergrad and through medical school, I, I thought of population health almost as preventative medicine. It's getting flu shots. It's ensuring primary care. It's things like that. Um, and I think that's still true, but it's incomplete. So a lot of the work that we do now is focused on the social determinants of health. And so my, uh, my evolved definition of population health involves you know clinical care, preventive care, primary care. And going upstream and addressing the social determinants of health, which I think are the root causes often of why people don't achieve their best health outcomes.
0: Yes, very good. And we'll talk more about social determinants of health after the break. Before we get to the break, I was actually speaking uh, with your colleague, Lisa. And one thing we had touched on was some of the cool perks that people today can earn, depending on their health plan, if they do certain things. Like if they exercise a certain amount, get their flu shot, there might be like little bonuses. How do you feel about incentives for healthcare? How how can we get people to engage in their own care? Uh, do incentives work? That's a great question.
1: Yeah, I think um, in an ideal world we would all have intrinsic motivation. And actually, this is this is really timely. I went to a parenting seminar uh, just last night. Um, Kids don't have intrinsic motivation, so (laughs) you have to think about um, ways to inspire them to do the right thing. And I I think, um, you know, kids, ourselves, our patients, um, I think there's a role for incentives. You know, I I think they play a part. I think you can't rely too heavily on them, but in some cases, you know, um, an incentive can resolve inertia. And if someone is set in their ways and they're not ready to, you know, get up and get off the couch and start doing something, an incentive can just give that little bit of nudge that will get them going. And then once they start something, they realize it's not so bad, it's not so hard, they build habits, and then that can persist over time.
0: Yeah, that, I agree. My, uh, someone very close to me, I won't name them, believe that flu shots you can get ill and, you know, kind of those... You hear those uh, rumors that may not necessarily have science backing to it, right? And uh, there's an incentive for her to get a flu shot, and she decided to do it. Now she does it every year. She doesn't get that incentive every year anymore, but now she realized, hey, I didn't get sick. You know, by getting the shot, this works. So um, Yeah,
1: exactly. I think it can help overcome inertia. I think there's a role for it there.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, we'll take a quick break, and then when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about Humana's bold goal and uh, more about social determinants of health. So folks, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Pop Health Podcast is a public service of 24-hour home care. All right, folks, welcome back from the break. So let's dive in and learn more about what this bold goal is. So Andrew, can you give us a little bit of background on Humana's bold goal?
1: Sure. Um, Our bold goal is to improve the health of the communities we serve by 20 percent, originally by 2020, and now it's by 2020 and beyond. Uh, So we've been at this since 2015. Uh, Our CEO, Bruce Broussard, uh, really defined the bold goal, threw down the gauntlet and said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to improve health um, of the communities we serve by 20 percent. And then he looked over at um, my team and said, "Okay, figure out how to measure that and figure out how to accomplish it. So that's, that's how it started.
0: All right. So figure out how to measure it. Tell us how in the world do you measure 20% improvement?
1: Uh, carefully is the, uh, <laughs> the <laughs> short way of saying that. But uh, no, it was, it was a really um, fascinating exercise. Um, so we've talked about population health and, and how to measure that and things like that. Um, so what we, we, we took the angle of health-related quality of life. So you know, lots of people talk about quality of life. Uh, we're a healthcare organization, so we wanted to focus on health-related quality of life, H R Q O L. And so we evaluated a number of different tools, different uh, you know, surveys and things like that. And what we settled on was the CDC Healthy Days tool. And we we chose that one for a couple of reasons. One, it's it's really simple and easy to administer. So it's just four questions, and the two main that we, we pay most attention to um, ask. How many days in the last 30 have you been physically unhealthy or mentally unhealthy? And you add those two numbers up, and that's the number of unhealthy days you have in a month. Um, so it was easy to administer. We also really like that it's a self report tool. So what healthy means to me is different than what healthy means to you. And I think that's really important when we're understanding quality of life or health related quality of life. And so, so we really like the healthy days tool. Um, once we chose that tool, we, we've gone down the path, and now we have three or four years' experience with it. We actually use it in three different ways. So um, the primary way we use it is a, is a population health surveillance tool. So to, to answer the original, how are we going to achieve the 20%, um, we do random sampling in our membership, um, different geographies, different lines of business. We sample about 3% of the population every year. It's random representative sampling. And then we trend those populations over time. So it's really interesting to see, you know, certain communities are improving at a greater rate than others, and we look and see what the root causes are. The second way that we use healthy days is actually as an outcome measure in the interventions that we do. So anytime we do an intervention, be it a clinical intervention to address something like diabetes or an intervention to address a social determinant, we look for outcomes kind of in three different categories. We look at, Healthy days, um, which is usually our leading indicator. That changes typically before other things do. And the sort of midpoint indicator are the clinical measures. So is their HbA1c improving? Is their blood pressure improving? Things like that. And then the lagging indicator often are utilization and cost changes. And so that's kind of how we use healthy days with interventions. And the third way we use healthy days actually is a proactive interventional tool. And that's probably most relevant in our Medicaid population. They have unique health needs. They have social determinant gaps. Um, we often don't know a lot about them when they first come onto our plan. And so we use Healthy Days there. We proactively call them on the phone, ask them the Healthy Day questions, and anyone that reports more than 20 unhealthy days in a month automatically gets a call back from a health navigator. And that navigator will ask them questions about, you know, do you have clinical needs that you need to be connected to a clinical resource? Do you have social needs where you need connection to a community resource or do you need help navigating your health plan, your benefits essentially? Um, And so, so really those are the three ways we use healthy Days. It all started with surveillance um, and now we've used it in some of these other ways.
0: Cool. So the navigators, um, I know a lot of folks don't engage in their own care or often don't want to necessarily talk with people. How often would you say your navigators are successful? And if you don't have the exact number, totally fine. How are Humana members willing to talk to somebody when maybe they're depressed or they're, un, they're not having a lot of healthy days? They're having a lot of unhealthy days. Are they willing to take that call? And how do you get them to take that call?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I don't have the exact percents, but generally speaking, yes. Uh, I, I find often that people that have, you know, whether it's clinical needs or social needs, often they're waiting for someone to ask them the question. And so we, we do just that. And in the case that I described, you know, we, we proactively call people out of the blue and we say, you know, we just want to understand how you're feeling about your health. How many, how many days in the last month have you felt unhealthy? Whatever that means to you. And that gets people talking. It gets them into a conversation. And then when they start to reflect on, gosh, I had 15 or 20 unhealthy days last month, they start thinking about, well, why is that? And then you can sort of have a uh, motivational interviewing kind of conversation with, with someone and say, okay, well, what do you want? What, what do you, what, what can't you do right now that you really want to do? Is it you want to walk your daughter down the aisle? You want to play with the grandkids at the park, whatever it is. Yeah. And then you turn that conversation into something positive and say, okay, well, you've got 20 unhealthy days a month. What would it take to get you to 10? Yeah. You know, how can we, you know, get you more engaged with your health? Um, get you more active, get you out of the house, whatever it is.
0: So are these navigators, Uh, clinical background social work background
1: yeah depending on the intervention they can be different things so in some cases they're nurses in some cases they're social workers um, in some cases they're um, you know health coaches yeah Um, so it just kind of depends we have sort of a variety and depending on what the need is you know sometimes you need you know uh, a specialist uh, as you say you know social workers have certain expertise nurses obviously have clinical expertise and so it it really
0: depends on what the need is okay Cool. So uh, most of those needs are probably not necessarily clinical needs, but maybe social needs. So talk about that and maybe, uh, yeah, I'll let you go from there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, we do a lot of work in the social determinants of health. Um, people have lots of different ways of describing that, but we, um, we describe it as it's, it's the social, economic and environmental things that influence a person's health. And so we, we've done a lot of work in that space, and really that kind of originated um, with our work with Healthy Days. So once we chose that measure, and once we you know started doing our population health surveillance, we wanted to understand, you know, how do we achieve that twenty percent goal? How do we how do we impact um, health-related quality of life? And so. We did some really interesting um, analysis and research um, through a partnership with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. So they're kind of uh, known experts in social determinants of health. We, we adopted their definitions for social determinants. Um, but what we found was um, they've defined about 60 different social determinants of health. And we realized that, you know, we can't boil the ocean. We're not going to, you know, solve 60 different things at once. We wanted to know where do we start, what do we, how do we prioritize? And so we did a really interesting exercise where we combined data from their um, county health ranking report that they send out on all their social determinants every year with our Healthy Days data on our membership. And we looked at if you improved a single social determinant from the 25th percentile to the 75th um, in a county relative to all the other counties in the country, what was the impact to Healthy Days? And when we did that analysis, what really came out on top was number one, loneliness or social isolation. And number two was food insecurity. And so that was a neat way. And we published that paper. Um, it was a neat way for us to kind of narrow down where we want to start. And so since then, we spent the last you know two years or so developing um, analytic pipelines and interventional pipelines um, to address those two things.
0: Awesome. Now, um, I've heard uh, that you do a lot of work on public policy. And I know historically addressing isolation and food insecurities, there weren't a lot of uh, channels to do that. But now I know those channels are opening up where you can address those. So um, how does like CMS and and the decision makers in our country, how are they with giving you guys the freedom to address these?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, honestly, we've all had to be educated over the last five years ago. Five five years ago, people weren't talking about social determinants of health. So whether it was CMS or us or our competitors, um, people didn't know the word, and they certainly didn't know how social determinants relate to health and health outcomes. And so I think you've seen this groundswell of of interest, and a lot of people are talking about these things now. And so, you know, yes, CMS, especially through their um, CMMI or their Innovation Center, is now allowing us to do, um, address social determinants within benefit design, within supplemental benefits and things like that. Um, but, you know, I think we've opened our aperture a little bit as well. We're more willing to go upstream and invest in, you know, addressing the social determinants of health. And so um, I think about addressing um, social determinants in really kind of three different ways. We we do one, we, we do organic pilots or interventions. And so we will um, say we're going to deliver meals to a patient's home or we're going to address their loneliness. We're going to specifically target them. We're going to you know, engage 300 or 500 people into a pilot. We're going to test against a control group and we see what the outcomes are. And if it works, we scale it to a program. That's that's way one. Way two, um, that's actually a better way of scaling more quickly is to integrate social determinants into current clinical operating models. And by that, I mean, we as an organization do disease management, uh, both telephonic and in-home for half a million plus people every year. And so we have an army of nurses and social workers and and other clinicians that are calling people on the phone, going into their homes and asking lots of questions about their health. Um, They're helping people with their diabetes, with their heart failure and so forth. Um, What I mean by integrating social determinants into those operating models is getting those clinicians to ask questions about social needs at the same time that they're asking about clinical needs. And I think that's... um, been something that we've had to, you know, educate ourselves on, educate our clinicians about the importance of addressing these things. But I think if you can elevate social determinants as clinical gaps in care and treat them at the same level as you would medication adherence and screenings and other things like that, you're going to achieve better health outcomes. So that's way two. And way three is just kind of what you're alluding to with CMS before is, you know, through benefit design. So just in the last kind of year or so um, through some uh, innovation center um, opportunities, um, th- there are really two ways that we can approach social determinants within benefit design. One is VBID or value based insurance design, and the other is SSBCI. Um, and basically, in some cases, we, we are able to address social determinants directly within a plan. In other cases, we address it within the context of chronic disease. So, someone might have diabetes and they're food insecure, and so we're able to um, do meal delivery for a period of time, or we're able to, you know, do some intervention where we help get them out of the house into a community center so they can engage and, and have uh, more social connections. So there's op- lots of opportunities out there now. It's, it's still early days, and, you know, I, I think one of the big challenges that we have is if we are going to elevate social determinants as clinical gaps in care, we have to understand um, sort of the return on health, and we have to understand the return on investment. So sort of two angles of that. How, how do these things, you know, prove that these things do impact health outcomes? And then we also have to understand that there is an ROI. And even with the ROI is a challenge because I think the further upstream you go in trying to address a gap in someone's health, sometimes the longer downstream you see the return yeah. in terms of healthcare resource utilization and costs. And so, you know… We traditionally operate in a relatively short ROI timeframe. Um, we have to open our aperture a little bit and be willing to think not one year, but maybe it's two years or three years or five years. And, you know, and that's that's a challenge in some lines of business where there's a little bit more churn and turnover. Um, in our Medicare membership, we tend to keep people eight, nine, ten years. And so there is that longitudinal opportunity to impact someone's long term
0: health. Definitely. Now, you mentioned a pilot. So uh, as one of the three ways in which you approach this. So um, I know in Florida, you guys have the PAPA program. Can you talk about that briefly?
1: Absolutely, Lo- love the Papa program. So it's it's Papa Pals is the the name of the intervention, um, and essentially what it is is it's a, an intervention to address loneliness. And um, love it because it's multigenerational too. So we have many seniors um, in, a, in our membership are lonely or socially isolated. We've we've done some surveying, and then, you know it's upwards of thirty to even forty or forty five percent of a population is to some degree lonely. And so we think about, you know, you can you can get a senior out of their home. You can take someone to their home to interact with them. There's different ways to approach this. But Papa Pals um, takes college kids and sends them to seniors' home Uh, for social interaction so it's not home care there's nothing clinical about it they're they're not clinicians but sending college kids into seniors home just for social interaction so they can watch a movie they can you know take them out to a park or just you know kind of interact with them for a couple of hours and they're they're called the pals Um, and so we we did a test um, earlier this year with just you know a couple hundred of our members and, you know, it's early days, but, you know, we found that there were statistically significant improvements in healthy days, our, our primary measure of health-related quality of life, um, really to the tune of, you know, 20%, 30% improvement in healthy days in a relatively short period of time.
0: Hitting that bold goal? Close to hitting our goal,
1: absolutely. So so we'd love to see that. Yeah. Um, and we also, you know, I think it's really important in any social determinant that where, where possible, we use validated survey instruments to understand. Um, and so for loneliness, we use the UCLA Loneliness Scale. It's a three-question questionnaire. And so we did that in this instance, both pre and post, and we saw statistically significant improvements in loneliness scores. Um, so, just having that basic social interaction, 10 hours a month, you know, it's not that much, but um, it really has a profound impact on someone's health related quality of life, how they pursue their health, their loneliness score. And then, you know, as, as we do this on a bigger scale, I think eventually we're going to see a direct impact to health outcomes, meaning healthcare resource utilization and costs.
0: That's great. So, as we wrap up the show today, uh, again, I'm looking forward to Papa Pals. We'll mm-hmm. keep it simple. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that and maybe seeing it scale. I know you mentioned it's early days, right? But would the plan be if you see greater success to scale it or?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's that's always our intention is that, you know, we we test and learn quickly. If something doesn't work, then we stop it. If it does work, we scale it. And, you know, as I mentioned, there's different ways to scale, right? So we can scale something into a program or a service that we offer our members it's something we can integrate into other care models that we're doing. So, you know, it could be a telephonic program that if, if they have a um, a loneliness gap in care, then we send the Papa Pal into their home. Um, and we can also look at benefits. So I, I think there's kind of always three approaches to scaling an intervention. Um, but we're a very data-driven company. And so, yeah. you know, we, we need to see the proof points. Um, and, and when we do, often, you know, in addition to giving us confidence to scale something, we also really believe that... Um, where we get these evidence and proof points that things are working we want to publish in the public domain and so we do a lot of research and publication and peer-reviewed journals i think it's it's important to have peers really kick the tires on our analysis and confirm that our conclusions are correct um, it also shares with the you know the industry as a whole and i think the rising tide does raise all ships you know our our bold goal is to improve the health of the communities we serve Communities includes our members, our associates, but it's the community at large as well. And so, when we publish our findings that something works, we hope that other people take that up, pick up the mantle, and and uh, you know uh, spread it
0: and and impact the health of more people. Awesome, Andrew. Well, thank you very much. Uh, quite a wealth of information. We've put a lot into about thirty minutes together today. Uh, if people want to kind of follow your work and see what Humana is doing, um, what's the best way to to stay in touch? with what you're doing here at Humana?
1: Yeah, Uh, so we actually just last week uh, launched our new uh, Bold Goal website. So if you wanna access it, it's humana.com forward slash Bold Goal. And if you go to that site, you'll see all kinds of different information. So we have information on all of the communities where we do our Bold Goal work. Um, You'll see our progress report. Every year we publish a progress report that, you know, kind of shows our progress towards our bold goal and talks about some of our interventions. You'll see interesting toolkits, both for patients and for providers, um, educating them on the importance of social determinants. And in the case of providers, actually educating them on how to implement screening and referral processes in their practices. Um, So lots of information on that website, but highly recommend that you go and check it out.
0: Awesome, great, and I know you're. Um, I've seen some of your posts on LinkedIn, so uh, I hope it's okay. But you can find Andrew on LinkedIn as well, Andrew Renda, Humana. Um, he's got some good, uh, good education links and things like that that he highlights on LinkedIn. So feel free to check him out there. And um, Andrew, any final takeaways for our audience of mostly healthcare professionals?
1: Um, well, just, I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, and anyone out there that's listening, I just encourage you to, uh, you know, keep fighting the good fight for population health and, and embrace social determinants as clinical gaps in care and just recognize that, you know, often social determinants are the root causes of why people aren't achieving their best health outcomes. And we, we've got to go upstream if we're going to impact long term outcomes for individuals and for populations at large.
0: Awesome, Andrew. Well, thanks again for being a guest today. Folks, if you've enjoyed today's show and want to learn more about Pop Health Podcast, feel free to check out pophealthpodcast.com. Of course, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher as well. And if you do like today's show, feel free to leave a review on iTunes. And that's how we stay visible. The show stays popular and we're able to secure guests um, like Andrew today. Thanks, folks. Take care.